rockets when you say stuff like that around them. What? It means nothing to them. And uh, also, if you're new, my sponsor probably saved my life with this one because I was in the process of removing my own character defects. <laughs> and that would give you a brain hernia. And, um, and I was, um, what he said was, I'm not responsible for what I think. I am responsible for how long I think it. I can't keep trash from showing up up here. But when it gets dirty, I can sweep. Wow. It gave me permission to be human. And it helped me tremendously, and that's why I share it. I missed, when I was doing the descriptions of the alcoholic, I missed one of my favorites on page 23. thought I might pick it up right now. I think this one just really rocks it for me. It may not touch you at all. First sentence, paragraph, middle of the page. Once in a while, he may tell the truth. I don't spread it around too thick myself, right? I'm saving it for emergencies. I, uh, there's a line in a country song I heard one time said, you'll never catch me in a lie, but I'll tell you the truth at my own pace. <laughs> Boy, there it is. And that's one of the big changes for me is actually getting out there and trying to tell the truth. And I, I want to quote a friend of mine from my home group who reduced what, what we do here to what she called the four ups. Get up, give up. Show up, fess up. Isn't that beautiful? Neat stuff. Neat stuff. Uh, and I heard this the other day, too, and I loved it. It said, don't let the things that AA brings you take you away from AA. And, um, and one more before I get into the sermon. Um, <laughs> love this one. For those who may be hiding behind the fact that our steps are just suggested, we have good news and bad news. The good news is you're right, they're only suggested. The bad news is they're the only suggestions we got. <laughs> Page 45. Lack of power. That was our dilemma. Not lack of management, not lack of getting what I wanted, not, not lack of figuring it. There's not a chapter figuring it all out. That was pointed out to me. So we had, had to, I wonder how important that is, we had to find a power by which we could live, and it had to be a power greater than ourselves. Here's the shortest sentence in the book, obviously. <laughs> Whole sentence right there, one word. Did you get it? Is that, I hope that's obvious for you. Where and how are we to find this power? That's exactly what this book is about. Its main object is to enable you to find a power greater than yourself which will solve your problem. I'd like to make an observation here. I want to observe, I can read that sentence two different ways. I happen to think both meanings are correct. Main object to enable me to find a power greater than myself, which just solve my problem. All right. It either says that the finding of that power solves my problem. Or it says, the fi I find the power and the power solves my problem. It does not say, I find the power and then I solve my problem. I like to observe a lot of times what it doesn't say. Because sometimes that carries power. Because I get confused about that kind of thing. Page 20. Another one of those. Isn't it important what it doesn't say? About eight lines down on page 20. If you are an alcoholic who wants to get over it. That's a pretty interesting caveat. Do you want to be over it? Have you had enough? Are you done? 
You may already be asking, what do I have to do? It is the purpose of this book to answer such questions specifically. We shall tell you what we've done. I'd like to observe what it does not say. It does not say, what do I have to know? We'll teach you what we've learned. What I know isn't worth anything. I believe there are people who know this better than I do that are drunk tonight. It doesn't say, what do I have to believe? We'll give you a new religion. If you're new, I don't much care what you believe. If what you believed worked, you probably wouldn't be here. Yeah, not asking you to believe it. It doesn't say what I have to understand will help you interpret. I don't care if you ever understand this. I had a fellow stop me after me. I knew he'd been watching me. If you're new and you don't have a sponsor and you're looking at somebody in particular thinking about asking to sponsor you, they know that. <laughs> this guy had been watching me for a while and I talked about one of the steps in the meeting. He stopped me after me and he said, this great profound question, he said, would you help me understand the steps better? And I said, no, absolutely not. I'll help you do them. I don't care if you ever understand them. Because this is not about what I understand. What it says is what do I have to do? We shall tell you what we've done. And what we have done is surrendered to sponsors who have already done these 12 steps. And allowed those sponsors to coach us through the 12 steps. And stayed active carrying this message. That's what we've done. And it's been the experience of this group because I asked the question earlier. Nobody here had ever seen anybody in another program. In and out of the fellowship, mm-hmm, every day. In and out of the program, no. There, page, uh, intentional misread, page 58. We are going to do how it works sometime tomorrow, by the way. But I love this one. This one's on purpose, all right? Rarely have we seen a person in jail who has thoroughly followed our path. Okay, so page 45 talks about me finding a power. Let's, talk, let's take a look at page 63 for a second. About, about eight lines down. As we felt new power flow in. There's power. Page 132 has power again. Kind of interesting. There's a, there's a great quote that you see a lot on that one. The one here in the middle of the page. Just for fun. It's 17 lines from the top and bottom and two words in from both margins. The center of the page. It says, we absolutely insist on enjoying life. I hope you insist on enjoying life. But here's the power went down four lines from the bottom. We have recovered and have been given the power to help others. A friend of mine who's been around for a long time said, be careful. That's not your power. That's power that's been given to you and you know whose power it is. You better make doggone sure you use it in ways that you think the giver of that power would approve of. I thought that was a pretty good piece of information. Bob talked a little bit about bottom and I want to talk about it too. I haven't found the definition in my, in my literature and this is my experience. Bottom for me was not of the, of the, on the physical plane. Uh, I'm a puker. Are there any pukers here? You pukers? Yes. All right. Ever come out your nose and nose pukers? Yeah. Yeah. The nose pukers will quit forever every time they do that. And, isn't that right, nose pukers? Yeah, you bet. You betcha. Yeah, quitting forever. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's, that's, that's really important stuff. But... And I've, I've, I've thrown up blood on several occasions. I've been in lots of kinds of trouble. I know men serving long prison sentences and aren't bottom. Bottom for me wasn't on the physical plane. Bottom is, is in here. Bottom was of the spirit. When I hated my guts and was so repulsed by the things that I'd done that I would have paid any price and done anything not to be me. That was bottom. That for me was the one that counted. That, that was where I was willing to pay the price. Page 53. 
Here's my story right here in the middle paragraph. When we became alcoholics crushed by a self-imposed crisis. Oh, I'm the problem? Self-imposed crisis? See, I thought that life was a series of I build things up and then it all comes crashing down. And then I build things up and it all comes crashing down. And I build things up and it all comes crashing down. I get sober and took a look at it. And what was really going on is I build things up and then I kick out the supports and it all comes crashing down. You know, that's the difference between my story and the truth. When we became alcoholics crushed by a self-imposed crisis, we could not postpone or evade. Hmm, those are my tools. Postpone or evade. We had to fearlessly face the proposition that either God is everything or else He is nothing. God either is or He isn't. What was our choice to be? I'm asked to make a choice here. Time to make a choice. Talking here about step two. Time to make a choice. That simple, really. I talked earlier, uh, let's take a look at 57. Talked a little bit earlier about sanity. This is some very powerful stuff for me at the top of page 57, where it promises me sanity in a couple of places. It says, save for a, free, a few brief moments of temptation, the thought of drink has never returned. And at such times, a great revulsion has risen up in him. Seemingly, he could not drink if he would. God had restored his sanity. I'll tell you right now, if your history with alcohol is anything like mine, being repulsed by the thought of a drink is a sane reaction. They are describing sanity. And then it says, what is this but a miracle of healing? Its elements are simple. Circumstances made him willing to believe. Right? He got in a crack so narrow he couldn't get out. That was how I got willing to believe. He humbly offered himself to his maker. Let's observe. He didn't say, give me a little help. Get me out of this one. I'll never do it again. Offering himself to his I was always afraid I was going to work God too hard. You know, I wouldn't want to give him too much. Tell you what, I wouldn't want to, I'll cover sex and money and he can get the rest. I don't think that's the package. Offered himself to his maker, then he knew. Even so, as God restored us all to our right minds, how's that for a promise? There's a promise of sanity. To this man, the revelation was sudden. Some of us grow into it more slowly. And here's a powerful promise. But he has come to all who have honestly sought him. Not found, but sought. When we drew near to him, he disclosed himself to us. One of my mentors tells me that, that God will, will disclose himself to me as I disclose myself to me. That that's what this thing is about. Page uh, 60. Just above the ABCs. Our description of the alcoholic... The chapter to the agnostic. Here's something they just added two years ago. I remember when they added this to the book. <laughs> and our personal adventures before and after. And after. Does that mean my adventures after my last drink? Make clear three pertinent ideas. I think that what's that, that's what that means. I can look at them and say it's true. A, that we were alcoholic and could not manage our own lives. And what I like to do with a new fella, and I'm not saying you should, this is just how I was taught to sponsor, is I like to get them through reading this first stuff. I like to read it to them. Let's talk about what it says. And then I'm going to ask them the ABCs as questions. Hey, we were alcoholic and could not manage our own lives. That's two-part. You're an alcoholic? Convince me. What makes you think so? Let's talk about it. Let's look at the descriptions of alcoholism and the alcoholic in the book. Do you meet these? Tell me how these things happen. Okay, and the second half, can't manage our own lives. What happens when you manage? How's it going? <laughs> Tell me about it. Let's hear it. And what I do is let him set his own cornerstones. 
B, that probably no human power could have relieved alcoholism. Who tried? Your parents try? Wife? Wives? Um, psychiatrists, psychologists, uh, judges, cops, treatment centers? Who tried? I'll tell you right now, I can't. And given the fact of what he has just told me, that none of those human powers were able to relieve his alcoholism, in the past, does it seem a logical conclusion? Therefore, no human power will be able to relieve your alcoholism in the future. I think that's pretty clear. It says that God could and would if he were sought. It doesn't say found. Item one, God is not lost. <laughs> Therefore, it is not required to be found. And I love this. I'm told that God is kind of like the mother of a three-year-old playing hide-and-seek with her child. Where does she hide? Where the child can find her. Sure. Powerful. Powerful. The book makes some recommendations on this one. Well, Mama, why'd Grandma die? Well, it was God's will. Sounds dangerous to me. Uh, I need to get away from that. Um, uh, well, okay, little boy, if you want that, pray for it. Okay, so as a little boy, I pray for it. One of two things happens. I get it, which, of course, is due to my own sheer skill and cunning or dumb luck, and not because God answered the prayer, or I don't get it. And either God doesn't exist or God exists and doesn't care about me. That's what I got here with, and, of course, the prayer, the pre-AA prayers I told you about before. That's how I got here, badly confused about all this stuff. The book makes the same recommendation on two different pages, page 12. where Ebby suggested to Bill a very novel idea, it says, just above the center of the page. My friend suggested what then seemed a novel idea. He said, why don't you choose your own conception of God? Wow. Page 93. About six lines down. He does not have to agree with your conception of God. He can choose any conception he likes. Provided it makes sense to him. Someone asked him to design God. To sit down and write down on a single piece of paper, bullet points, not narrative, but bullet points. What would you like God to be? Not what do you believe, not what did they tell you. What would you like God to be? Let's put it down. How about creative? How about laughs a lot? How about available? How about loving? How about eager to forgive? <coughs> let, let, let's put them down. What, and I don't, I don't start. I want him to start. And when he gets a list, um, sometimes I'll say, now I'd like to suggest some additions. Don't put them down if you don't want them. And you can free, you're free to add to the, this list anytime you want to. And from this point on, when you and I use the word God, we're going to be talking about this one, the one you've designed, because he will have bracketed my own concept. And we have reason to believe that's true. We're going to act as if, not fake it. We're going to act as if. I'm going to ask you, if you believe that, how do you think you'd conduct yourself? Conduct yourself in that manner and we'll see what happens. It's what the scientists called a working hypothesis. It means we have reason to believe this might be true. The reason we have is that this is what I believe and my life's working. So let's act as if you, you would act if you believe that. And see what happens. A simple experiment. Page 46.
This is for the immediate gratifiers in the room. There may be some. Yes, we of agnostic temperament have had these thoughts and experiences. Let us make haste to reassure you. We found that as soon as, that means right now, as soon as we were able to lay aside prejudice and express even a willingness to believe in a power greater than ourselves, we commenced to get the results. This is what I quoted before when we started. Even though it was impossible for any of us to fully define or comprehend that power which is God. I had to take when I got here my own concept of what the words God's will meant. And break them into two pieces. This is, just, again, red flags. This is just what worked for me. The first piece is a series of things that include what am I going to be when I grow up? Where am I going to live? Who am I going to live with? How much money am I going to make? What's going to happen to my children? Do the pygmies in Africa have never heard of Jesus? Can they go to heaven? All of that stuff. All right? It seems to me that every bit of that violates one day at a time. As it's all in the future. And being in the future, I now think of that concept as God's plan. Step one, section B, says I'm not management. Consequently, I don't need to know what the plan is. And I lay that down and it leaves me with my own concept of God's will. And that's very simply, what would he have me do today? I'm a citizen. I voted. And I'm going to tell you how I voted. I voted by secret ballot. I hope you did too. And I, and I hope you won't ever go any further than that in or around an AA meeting. It's really important. All right. I'm a citizen. I vote. I drive a vehicle. Put your blinker on near me in traffic. I will let you in. Uh, I'm an alcoholic. I have a home group. I have a sponsor. I've worked the steps. I sponsor some guys. I have the privilege of taking meetings into treatment centers and uh, jails. Uh, I'm married to a spectacular woman. I act like it all the time. I say please and thank you. Uh, I'm a child of God. I pray. I meditate. I read spiritual literature. I go to meetings. I try to treat you guys like brothers and sisters. I know what God's will is for me. is to act like one of his children today. For me, the simple concept of God's will is what would he have me do today. To step out of management. To quit trying to figure it all out. And walk humbly in his presence this day. I think the word today is the magic word. I think it's the magic word. A lot of times guys I sponsor bring me a question and I'll say, Give me that question again. I want to hear the question with the word today in it. And let's stop trying to fix the rest of your life. i got a friend who says he spends too much time in his head trying to clear away the wreckage of his future. <laughs> got to get out of that business. The today word is magic. Let's hear the question with the word today in it. Let's explore answers that contain the word today. Let's see what happens. That works so beautifully. Okay, still on page 46, next paragraph. Much to our belief, I'm sorry, much to our relief, we discovered... We did not need to consider another's conception of God. Our own conception, however inadequate, was sufficient to make the approach and to effect a contact with Him. As soon as, right now, as soon as we admitted the possible existence of a creative intelligence, a spirit of the universe underlying the totality of things, we began to be possessed of a new sense of power and direction, provided we took other simple steps. I wonder what steps they're talking about. <laughs> Always curious about that. Always wondered about that. We found that God does not make too hard terms of those who seek Him. Oh, God's not mad? Oh, I'm so glad to hear that. To us, the realm of spirits, broad, roomy, all-inclusive, never exclusive or forbidding to those who earnestly seek it is open, we believe, to all men. I'm going to skip the next paragraph uh, because I've been working on as soon as, and here it comes again. We need to ask ourselves at one short question. Do I now believe, or am I even willing to believe, that there is a power greater than myself? As soon as... 
a man can say that he does believe or is willing to believe. We emphatically, that's with energy, we emphatically assure him that he is on his way. It has been repeatedly proven among us that upon this simple cornerstone, a wonderfully effective spiritual structure can be built. I would like to make a couple of observations. One of them is that I do not consider myself to be an expert on this, and I know Bob doesn't either. We're students of this thing. And uh, if you disagree with anything I have to say, I'd love to hear from you. Let's not talk to you. It's to hear from you. It's a chance for me to learn something. So please, not in public, but, you know, one at a time. Um, <laughs> and uh, several people actually have asked if we could do a question session. And uh, they asked for questions and answers. We can't promise that, but we can sure promise questions. And uh, questions and dumb looks, we can guarantee that. <laughs> we got that covered for you. So, uh, and I also would request that the questions, if any, would be short. I've only got two brain cells left, and one of them's on a respirator, and the other one flickers. And if you, uh, if you go into a long question, I won't be able to understand the question. But if anybody's got anything for us, because if not, we can continue or we can take the break for tonight. Yes, sir. Okay, forward to the first edition. I'm so sorry. Forward to the second edition, 150,000 recovered alcoholics. Uh, about second paragraph down, kind of in the middle of the paragraph. What, what page are you on? Page XV, Roman numeral 15. I'm so sorry. I'm in a, I'm in a third edition book. I'm at a that's fine. The, the, that's on the forward same. Forward to the second edition. Forward to the second edition. Uh-huh. Yeah. XV. 150,000 alcoholics. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 300,000 copies of the book, 150,000 recovered alcoholics. Okay. So that's like 50% in 1955. Right. Right? So why is it that whatever the numbers are that are the numbers, that it's like 2 or 3%? He's asking the question is why the recovery rate's different. Actually, it's on page Roman numeral 20XX at the end of that, which is, I think, a similar question. It says, of alcoholics who came and really tried 50%, got sober at once. Remained that way, 25% sobered up after some relapses. Among the remainder stayed on, showed improvement. I think the reason the numbers are so much better today than they were in that day is because we are so focused on the steps. This group tonight has seen no relapses among people who actually did the program. And I think that's powerful. There's, there's a phrase that scares me to death, and forgive the soapbox again, but we are committing murder with the phrase, don't drink and go to meetings. People think people are dying from that. They're dying from that. I got, I got a question on that one. If sitting with a bunch of other alcoholics talking about our problems is going to get people sober, wouldn't the guys under the Woodland Street Bridge in Nashville, Tennessee, be sober right now? You bet they would. It ain't working for them, and it does not work for us. Here are the steps we took. We polled this group tonight, and nobody here has seen anyone actually do the steps out of this book with a sponsor and stay active and drink again. I'd say we were batting a 1,000 in here tonight and in the experiences of the people here. Not only has no one here done it, then nobody here has seen it. So I think the numbers have gotten better. But, but hanging around AA meetings for a while won't any more turn you into a sober member of AA than sitting around in a garage going to turn you into a 57 Chevy. <laughs> My, that's an opinion only, but uh, it's also my experience. Thanks. Anybody? Anybody else? Sir? What did they do before they had the Big Book 12-step study then? Bill? Did they uh, all go out and drink? 
Bob? You know, if you if yeah, you repeat his question, uh, the question is, what did they do before the big book was printed in 1939? Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, the steps were in place. They came from the Oxford group. They were actually there was only six of them, and Bill fleshed them out to twelve. Uh, if you if you go through Bill's story, uh, Bill took the twelve steps before. He had the spiritual awakening in Towns Hospital. If you let me see if I can find this part of the book, it, it gives you a, a thumbnail description of what the early members did, and it's it, huh? twelve and thirteen. Page twelve and thirteen. Listen to this. Now, this is before there was an Alcoholics Anonymous. This was before the Big Book. This is Bill's probably. This is probably December eleventh, nineteen thirty-four. Uh, let me see. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Thirteen. Okay. At the hospital, page thirteen. At the hospital, I was separated for alcohol from the from alcohol for the last time. Treatment seemed wise, for I showed signs of delirium tremors. There, I, this is in the hospital. There, I humbly offered myself to God, as I understood Him, to do with me as He would. I placed myself unreservedly under His care and direction. I admitted for the first time that of myself I was nothing, and that without him I was lost. Step that's, That looks like the first three steps. I ruthlessly faced my sins and became willing to have my newfound friend take them away root and branch. Now that sounds like four, five, six, and seven. And you notice he says root and branch. He talks about that this step six and seven here differently than anywhere else in Alcoholics Anonymous. He says, I have had, not had a drink since. And then uh, later, okay, my school met, visited me and I fully acquainted him with my problems and deficiencies, step five. We had made a list of people I had hurt and towards whom I had resentment. That's step eight. I expressed my entire willingness to approach these individuals admitting my wrongs, step eight again. Never was I to be critical of them. I was to write all such matters to the utmost of my ability. I was to test my thinking by my new God consciousness within, step 11. Common sense would thus become uncommon sense. I was to sit quietly when in doubt, asking only for direction and strength to meet my problems as he would have me, step 11. Never was I to pray for myself except as my request bore on my usefulness to others, step 11 again. Then only might I expect to receive, but that would be in great measure. My friend promised that when these things were done, I would enter upon a new relationship with my Creator, that I would have the elements of a way of living which answered all my problems. I think it becomes very apparent that these steps, Bill took these before, uh, they, before they ever did it, because later on page 14, after he did the steps, is when he had his spiritual awakening. The big myth in AA is that Bill had this white light experience from doing nothing. Bill went through all of this stuff and then had the white light experience on page 14 after he went through the steps. The steps have been in place since the very beginning. If, if you ever want to read a good book, it's called, I think it's called The Tale of a Comet. And it's Frank Buckman's biography of how, of how he formulated some of this stuff. This stuff is, has been in pr place since day one. Anybody else? Anybody else? Good morning, I'm Bob Darrell and I am alcoholic.
after a moment of silence, would you join me in a prayer? Lord, help me to set aside everything I think I know about you. Everything I think I know about myself. Everything I think I know about others. And everything I think I know about my own recovery. All for a new experience in you, Lord. A new experience in myself. A new experience in my fellows. And a much needed new experience in my own recovery. Amen. Uh, good morning. We're going we're gonna to finish up and make the transition from step two into step three this morning. We had been going through some parts of the, of the book that uh, We Agnostics. And I want to touch on two little parts out of We Agnostics. One is really the essence of what I have to do in step two. And it's, it's a lot simpler than I, than I imagined. And it, Bill refers to that in the 12 by 12 when he talks about the the hoops we have to jump through in step two are, are a lot easier than we ever thought. And in the middle of page 46, there's a paragraph, and it talks about two things. It doesn't even really say I have to believe. If I can just do two things, I'll be on my way. And it says, the second line down in the middle paragraph in the page, it says, let us make haste to reassure you. We found that as soon as we were able to, well, first, lay aside prejudice, and second, express even a willingness to believe in a power greater than ourselves, we commenced to get results, even though it was impossible, impossible for any of us to fully define or comprehend that power, which is God. I think sometimes one of the most misunderstood things in Alcoholics Anonymous is that, is that last couple words in the third step where it says God as we understood him and it's easy and I to imply from that as, as a lot of new people do as I did that I must first understand God and it's not it's not it's not a it's not a closed in expression it's a it's a broad open-ended expression meaning that you don't have to understand anything or anything you understand is approachable it's, it's of your understanding, whatever, from zero to a hundred on any scale, whatever that is. And I, I misinterpreted that as I had to understand God. And the book really comes out and tells me very point blank that you don't even try. And the only reason I would try anyway is because the stuff I try to understand, I can control. I mean, that's the only reason I try to understand God. So I shoot a couple angles here to get a little bigger piece of the pie. I want a little more grace of this grace thing that you guys talk about than everybody else has because I definitely need it more. I can tell. I can feel it. And, uh, so I don't, I don't have to understand God. If I can do these two things, lay aside prejudice. I didn't know what prejudice was. It, it comes from a Latin word, to prejudge. It is all my opinions my judgments, my preconceived notions about God, about spiritual terms. If I can get to a point where, if I can move towards a point of being childlike and know nothing, and that's a hard, hard thing to do for uh, opinionated guys like me who think they know all kinds of things. I know stuff I don't even know. I mean, I can just... You can ask me a question about something I don't even know anything about, and I'll tell you the answer. I'll make one up on the spot because I want to be the I know guy, right? Uh, that's the kind of ego I came in here with. Uh, 
So to get childlike enough to know that I don't know. Uh, and then the second thing it says is to uh, express even a willingness. And the wisdom of the old timers when I was new, they had me taking actions that seemed to me, in my judgment, inappropriate. They had me getting down on my knees and physically, physically getting on my knees and praying every morning when I didn't even really believe in God as of yet. You know, I remember arguing with this guy. I said, you know, well, I, I cannot feel like a hypocrite doing that. He says, you've been a hypocrite all your life. What's the difference? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's true. I mean, I was the... I, was, I never did what I said I was going to do. I, I was the guy who owned, I was owned by my feelings. I'd tell you, oh, yeah, I'll come over and help you. When it came time to come over and help you, if I didn't feel like it, I'd do something different. I was owned by my emotions, childish emotions. So I was a hypocrite. So I started, I was living in a halfway house. <clears throat> and I, I would go in the bathroom, and I'd feel stupid. I'd lock the door. Make sure the curtains are pulled over the window tight. Throw the, push the rug underneath the crack in the door to pray, to get down on my knees, as if I think somebody's going to look under the crack and see me praying or something. I don't know. I'm crazy. And I'd get down on my knees, and I'd say that simple little prayers like, uh, whatever's there, I need help today. Please help me to stay sober. And, and I'd get down on my knees at night, and I'd thank whatever that was. And <clears throat> some funny things started happening to me. And... I, it was a while before I could connect the dots and realize that they were initiated by those actions. And one of the things that started happening to me was I started having a lot of eerie good luck. <laughs> like eerie good luck. I mean like, like, and I'm not a good luck kind of guy. I'm a bad luck magnet. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm a bad luck magnet. And funny things would start happening to me. Like I... I, like most new people, my first couple years of sobriety, I would go on these emotional roller coasters for no reason. I could be just sitting in a meeting, feeling good, and all of a sudden it'd be like some key would turn in my head and I'd just get depressed all of a sudden and feel like awful. And and sometimes I'd be like that and I wouldn't know what to do and I'd just I'd say, well, they say pray this pray thing, prayer, prayer. So I'd say, God, please help me. I'd go to a meeting or I'd be at a meeting and somebody would start sharing, some guy I don't even know, and he would be talking exactly about what's going on in my life. I mean exactly. And I don't know how he got that. And he's got an answer for me. And that didn't happen to me once or twice. That happened to me over and over and over again. I, I was in early sobriety. I couldn't get a job. And the perfect job just came to me. I mean, it wasn't the job I really wanted. God had that. But it was the perfect <laughs> job for a, guy that, for a guy like me. It, it got me out of the halfway house. It, it got me, uh, gave me room and board. It was a job is uh, a live-in house manager for a treatment center for teenagers. It put me in a safe, sober recovery environment, gave me room and board, and it got me out of the halfway house. And my one roommate in the halfway house was selling heroin, and the other one was dealing marijuana. I mean, I don't know how much longer I could have stayed there, you know, without going over the, off the deep end. And I started to see that there was something. Something's going on here. Something. I, and I'm a skeptic, and I've always been a skeptic, and I'm a cynic, you know, and I don't believe easily, and I'm, I'm the guy that... 
because I, I want your approval, I would come to AA meetings and talk like I believe in God way before I really did. I mean, because I want, because it was the thing to, it was the proper thing to say in AA. And I, God forbid you'd reject me here because I had nowhere else to go. So I wanted to be liked here. But I started to really come to believe the only way that a guy like me, I think, is that's wired the way I'm wired, could ever come to believe, God had to come to me. Uh, and just I just made a tiny little actions, just tiny little actions, and God came the rest of the way. He was so, so gracious in my life for a, uh, a guy like me, who really was a skeptic and a cynic and a judgmental kind of guy. And I my... And what my experience was like as it evolved was very similar to... I heard a story years ago about this over in London. And I just came from there. And I, they still do this in some parts of London. The streets are, have gas streetlights. And there was a guy years ago who would go around the streets of London with a long pole with a flame on the end. And he would light the streetlights. And he was called a lamplighter. And if you crawled up, climbed up to the top of one of those towers in London or one of those high buildings and looked out over the city at twilight, you couldn't see where the lamplighter was, but you could always see where he'd been by the lights in the city. And I could sit in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous at two years sober or two and a half years sober, and I, I couldn't see where God was at that moment. But I'll tell you, I could see where he'd been. Uh, in my life, so so clearly, and even more distinctly, I could see where he'd been in the guys that I watched get sober after me. You know, I started doing H and I work when I was brand new, and I would go back into the detoxes in the in the prison, and I, I some of these guys I'd watch, I would see them in detox, and I would talk to them, and they were more dead than alive. These were hopeless, hopeless, homeless, used up human beings that don't have a chance. That alcohol has just demoralized them and screwed them up mentally and emotionally. That they'll never save their own life. They don't even like themselves enough to do that. And then they start taking simple actions that open this door. And then six or eight months later, I see them get their kids back. I see them, I see them in meetings with guys that they're trying to sponsor and the lights are on. And I watch them turn the corner. And man, I... I, that has to be some kind of power that is beyond anything I could imagine it's, that is changing them. And it's easier, I think, for us to see God's hand in others than it is in ourselves because God's hand works so slow. I mean, well, he's old. I mean, he's very old. And, and it's hard to see him work in my life because it's such a slow evolution sometimes and I live the change. It's like trying to stand in front of a mirror and watch your hair grow. It doesn't, it doesn't mean that it doesn't grow. It's just a slow thing. But I could see it in you much clearer and easier. It took a longer time to see it in me. Um, on page 55, there's, the big book is, uh, this is an amazing page. And the, the two paragraphs in the middle of this page, it, it it says exactly when, exactly where, and exactly how I will connect with this juice, this grace, this power in the universe uh, that I, I, I will die without. 
The book had said, lack of power is my dilemma. Alcoholics Anonymous is really a quest for power by people who are dying and desperate for power, uh, for, by people who have exhausted every source of power they could find. And alcohol uh, and combinations of alcohol and drugs was a tremendous source of power for a while. I mean, it was I mean, think about it. What, you have something that at one time, no matter how bleak and lonely and desolate this world seemed, no matter how depressing it was, five shots of, of Jack Daniels and the world would shape up. It would just get better. That's power. That's true. It's power to come out and play. It's power to uh, talk to people. Power to integrate myself when I felt like I was dying of loneliness. Power to be a part of. Power to... to, to have some control over my emotional nature. Power to just rise above my depressive tendencies. Power to shake off the anxieties that just seem to eat my lunch and the worries. That's power. And I must find this power somehow or I, I will perish. And on page 55, it starts, says in the middle of the page, is this first, second full paragraph, it says, Actually, we were fooling ourselves for deep down in every man, woman, and child, deep down within me, is the fundamental idea of God. It may be obscured, which it may be blocked. It may be obscured by calamity, by pomp, by worship of other things. But in some form or other, it is there for faith in a power greater than ourselves and miraculous demonstrations of that power in human lives are facts as old as man himself. We finally saw that faith in some kind of God was a part of our makeup, just as much as the feeling we had for a friend. Sometimes we had to search fearlessly. Fearless and searching. Sometimes we had to search fearlessly, but he was there. He was as much a fact as we were. We found the great reality in capital letters, the great reality deep down within us. And when? In the last analysis. After I've looked everywhere else on the planet for power in this, in this cosmic Easter egg, to claim my Easter egg hunt, to claim my inheritance, as I look after I look everywhere else and find nothing in the last analysis, it is only there that he may be found. It was so with us. And that's really my story of this, this last analysis stuff. You know, I, I spent uh, seven and a half years fighting alcoholism. And I sought help and power to do that in a lot of places. I went to some of the greatest psychiatrists in the world. I, my, my dad was politically connected. He got me in to see people that you couldn't get in to see unless you were like a movie star or something. These amazing psychiatrists that had founded whole movements of psychotherapy. And I went to therapy for them, and nothing changed. Um, I tried the medications of the era that were popular at the time in the in the by psychiatrists for guys like me, and nothing changed. Uh, I did religions. I've done, I did a lot. I did meditations. I did 
uh, chanting. I did uh, everything that was available and nothing seemed to change. And, and through all of that, on a regular basis, I keep ending up in rooms full of alcoholics. Now, it's not that I have alcoholism, but every time I drink, I end up where all the alcoholics are at. You know, I, like I, don't con- I haven't connected the dots with that one yet. And I'm looking everywhere else, and I keep ending up with you. And I come in here, and I look for power for my first couple years of sobriety everywhere else. Jobs and relationships, money, activities, committee positions, general service. I'm looking for juice. I'm looking for validation. I'm looking for security. I'm looking for the power to shore up my life and fill my vacancies everywhere else. And then after several years of sobriety, I started to be, as Scott talked about on page 53 last night, I started to become crushed by these self-imposed crises I could not postpone or evade. And I had to fearlessly face this proposition and start to go back through the work again because I had missed a lot of stuff. And much to my surprise is that I, I started, as I did the work to clear away this channel, to clear away the pomp, the calamity, the worship of other things, which really is, is completely touched on and cleared away in steps four through seven. As I cleared away that stuff, something star- a presence started to come into my life. Uh, not a constant presence, but a presence that is often overshadowed by, as Bill uses a term I love, the, the worldly clamors. You know, when I get in my head, no, I, I can't, when I'm in my head, God's not, I don't feel God's presence in my head. You know why? Because when I'm in my head, I'm not in the place where God is. It tells you in chapter 5 exactly where you're going to find God. It says, there is one who has all power, that one is God. May you find him in a place it refers to that most of us seldom visit. And you find him now. (laughs) I mean, now. Even as I'm saying that, some of you aren't even here. You're you're in your head thinking, oh, I can't wait to tell Joe that. And oh, boy. You're not even here as I'm saying that. You're somewhere else, right? <laughs> so that I would start to connect if I could clear away those, those three things. And I heard a story uh, by a guy who wasn't an AA, a guy named Earl, Earl uh, Nightingale, who was a, he told this story and he said, he said this is a true story. And it was a, an account of, of a thing that happened in South Africa. And when I, I heard this story, it blew my mind because it, it's, it was exactly what had happened to me. And he, he was told this story about this guy who grew up in South Africa and he had inherited a, a ranch from his dad. And it wasn't a, like a spectacular ranch, <clears throat> but it was a nice ranch. A ranch that would have secured him and his family a nice living for generations to come, a nice, comfortable existence. And, but he inherited the ranch at a time when the diamond boom was on in South Africa and there were people that were becoming overnight Rockefeller, Bill Gates, mega rich. And the more he heard the stories of their wealth and their uh, abundance, the more dissatisfied he became with what he had. Sound familiar? 
And he finally, after a while, he couldn't take it anymore. He sold his ranch, took the money, invested it in equipment to go prospecting and searching for diamonds, and went out to the bush obsessed with striking it rich. And he never did find diamonds out there. And he died out there bitter and alone and had a miserable existence. And it came to pass that this ranch he sold, he sold it to two developers and they were going to develop some of the property and they were moving these stones out of the way one day. One day and uh, they found these unusual looking rocks and they'd never seen anything quite like them before. And they took them to a guy and the guy said, well, they're diamonds, diamonds in the rough. And when you, they cut them and clean them up and they found that this ranch was the largest diamond deposit ever found on the planet. And... <laughs> These brothers, one day, they all of a sudden, they have to form this huge corporation to, to mine and market and s these diamonds. And the one guy says to the other, well, what do we call this corporation? And the guy, the guy says, I don't know. He says, well, well, why don't we name it after that poor SOB that died out in the bush that we bought this ranch from? And the guy said, that's a good idea. What was his name again? Oh, it was De Beers. That's right. And they named this company after De Beers. And I'm reading that, and I'm thinking to myself, I'm that idiot. I'm that guy. I'm looking everywhere else, and God keeps throwing this stuff at me. You know, I go, I'm sitting in meetings, you know, I'm sitting in meetings thinking how I'm going to connect with God, and what, I, what should I do to make my recovery better? And, and in the background, somebody's reading this thing, goes, and these are the steps we took, which are suggested as a program recovery. And I'm, God, I wish he'd stop getting that over. I'm interfering with my thinking here. You know. I'm that nut. <laughs> And this, this, this thing that I'm, that I will find the great reality, the, the presence of God, presence like as opposed to past and future, the presence of God in my life, if I can clear away the things that keep me from showing up in my life right now, the things that keep me up in here, that keep me in the bondage of self, this pomp. And if you don't know what pomp is, it's ego. I think I, I, I am capable of being so full of myself and my judgments and my opinions, there's no room for God's grace. I could be that self-consumed. And calamity, oh, we all know what calamity is. The book says we're producers of confusion rather than harmony. You know, I'm a producer of calamity. I, Father Martin had a great saying once. I heard him say this one of his talks, talks, and it was so... Right on. He said, you can go to any workplace in the country and pick out the alcoholics, not by the alcohol in their breath. He says, look for the people that everybody walks on eggshells around. <laughs> you know, we produce calamity. We produce confusion. We are, we are not... We, we are not, in, there's no alcoholic with untreated alcoholism is ever accused of being a source of harmony. I mean, we're, it just never, it never happens. We're the opposite, you know. And this worship of other things, um, this, I didn't get that for a long time. And I, I was sober about a year and a half. And I, I was coming out of my first sober relationship. And I'll tell you, there's not a person on the planet more self-obsessed than a guy ending his first sober relationship. I mean, it's, you can go up to a guy like that and say, I just came from the doctor, I have terminal cancer and two weeks to live, and he'll go, and you know what else she said, man? You know, you know, right? 
you know, you just got, it's just on you, right here like that creature, an alien that attaches itself to you, you're just on, it's on you. And so I'm like that, and I go to this meeting, and I can't hear anything in the meeting because I'm, because she's a member of AA and she's not in that meeting, and because she's not in that meeting, some hideous force has implanted a spring in the back of my neck, and every time the door to the meeting opens, I just go like that. You know, I can't help it. It's just, it's like, uh, and then when the door's not opening, I'm not listening to anything because I'm in my head thinking about driving by her house and thinking about, you know, I'll say this to her and then she'll say that and then I'll say this and then she'll say that and then I'll hit her with this. Oh, and it'll humble her. She'll realize how wrong she was. Beg my forgiveness. Be properly ashamed of herself and it'll be wonderful. And when you're like, you're so I, God can be trying to talk to me through the people in the meeting and I'm not hearing anything. I'm locked up in here. And the meeting's over, I've heard nothing. I end up going out to coffee with some people, and I end up in this coffee shop, me and a guy from California who was a visitor, a guy from Glendale, and, and uh, who I've never seen since. I've even actually looked for him. I don't know. I've never found him since. And this guy's sitting there, and he's patiently listening to me talk about this relationship for 20 or 30 minutes. I think his eyes glazed over about 10, you know. <laughs> But he's, he's a very patient guy. He's listening to me go on and on about her and her. And when I'm done and I run out of gas, he says to me, he says, uh, you ever thought about the first commandment? And I'm, you know, I'm kind of new. I'm a year and a half sober. I still have a little bit of prejudices from my childhood. And I said to him I, something like, oh, I'm not really into that. I'm just into AA. And he, go, he smiles and he goes, yeah. He says, I know. He says, guys like me and you, we never get past the thou shalt not. Uh, he said, I think, I think the Ten Commandments lost something in the translation out of the Aramaic and through the Latin into the English. And, and I, he says, I think they were originally written as statements of spiritual cause and effect. He said that in the first commandment, I am the Lord thy God, thou shalt not have false gods before me. He said, he says, I think you could throw out the thou shalt not. It's... it's he said, I think with God, he loves you no matter what. You can put anything you want between you and God, and it's perfectly all right with God. The problem is, you've just put something between you and God. You've just blocked the light. You now are in the shadow. You live in the shadow of what you put there. And he said, what you worship or put between you and God is that worship, he says, doesn't mean to bow down to something. It means to just obsessively turn your consciousness towards. He said, you want to know what you worship? He says, at the end of the day, make a pie graph of everything you've been thinking about, and the thing that owns the pie graph is what you have been obsessively turning your consciousness towards. And when he said that, I pictured a pie with a tiny little sliver for work and a little sliver for A, and the rest of the pie was her. And no wonder I felt lost and desolate and in the dark of my, uh, the soul was, my soul was in the dark because I put myself there. And I did that. I did that in a false quest for power because I was functioning under an illusion. And the illusion is if I had her in my life, that then it would complete me. I will, I will have wrested happiness and satisfaction out of this world by managing well. And I wish I could tell you from that moment on, I've never done that again, but I've done that a lot. I've done that with relationships. I've done it with work. 
I've done it with things I want to be right about, and I've got to make you see. I've done it about resentments. I've done it about fears that I've obsessed on, and we'll talk about this in the inventory, obsessed on to the point where I've made them come true. I've done it about a lot of stuff. And every time I do that, I live in its shadow, and I'm cut off from the light. And it's not a moral judgment. God doesn't stop stop loving me. I, I sort of sometimes imagine that he weeps for the loss of me, that he loves me that much. There's a line in our book that says that God does not make too hard terms with those who seek him. And that has really, really been my case. I, I, uh, I'll tell you, if, if, if God was somebody like me, Bob wouldn't have got helped. When a George, I think it was George Bernard Shaw, Shaw said, the, he said, one of the, he said, he said something that was remarkable. He said that God created us in his own image, and then unfortunately we turned around and returned the favor. <laughs> and start to imagine that God has all the little judgments and the pettiness that I have, and you know, because if I was God, first of all, half you'd be dead right before the end of the day. Just, and uh, I started. That's part of my prejudices. And I heard a guy a few years ago, a friend of mine from California named Jim, tell a story about going to Florence, Italy. And I'm going there. I've, I've ever since I heard this story, I'm going there for about ten days with uh, before the international with a couple of the guys I sponsored because I've always wanted to go there. And he said he was in Florence, and it's the center of the Renaissance art. And he, he told this story about walking around, looking at all these sculptures. And he was looking at it. He said it was a Donatelli uh, exhibit. And he walked into this one room, and he said there was a, a, staff, a life-size statue of the Mary Magdalene that, that stopped his heart. And he said it was unlike any statue of Mary Magdalene he'd ever seen. It was a... It, most of the depictions he'd seen of Mary Magdalene showed her with long flowing hair and robes, and she was very beautiful. He said this was not like that. This was a, a depiction of Mary Magdalene where her face was etched with pain and emotion. And he said that she looked like she had been turning tricks on the back alleys of Jerusalem for years. And he, she stood there, and he said as he looked at her, he started to weep because she had a, her hand out like this and an expression on her face as if it said, this could be for me? For me? And when Jim's told that story, I started crying because I, it touched something within me, a deep-seated feeling of unworthiness. And, and this... this a friend of mine says something that he says, maybe your maybe your feeling of unworthiness is just good judgment. Uh, because the truth is, I probably don't deserve the help I've gotten. You know, um, which really gives me a different view of the universe than I've always had. It, it is the treatment I've gotten from this gracious creator of the universe that lets me know how wrong all my old ideas have been. Uh, that this could be for me and is. 
and always will be. And if I ever lose this 